Pastor Dave is leaving. Uh, his not he's leaving this morning for the rest of the service. His wife, Autumn, she's going to the hospital. She's been sick, and so I'd like to just have a time of prayer right now for him and for Autumn, that he would keep them safe and keep her safe from her pregnancy before we begin into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, you are merciful. You are truly a merciful God. That is what you are. We ask that right now you would show grace and mercy to Autumn and Anne-Marie, that you would keep them safe. Lord, we ask that you would help them to trust you in times of uncertainty, and Lord, that they would not fall into sin even as they fall, as even as this time of uncertainty comes upon them. Lord, heal her, heal Autumn, may she recover well, and may her and Anne Marie remain safe. We ask these things, knowing that while they are under the care of their doctors, that they're ultimately under your fatherly care, and they rest in your hands. So we ask that you do these things in Christ's name, and for his sake, amen. All right. I, I myself appreciate the prayers. I, I stopped in the group Thursday evening. My voice was gone almost entirely, and um, I know that's that group to pray for me. I believe you did, and I appreciate it. Uh, able to preach here this morning. Uh, since we have finished the Gospel of Mark, uh, we've been focusing our time together on topical sermons according to the specific needs of the church. Um, I was thinking through what text to preach on this Lord's Day, and I remembered Pastor Dave Allison's ordination, uh, particularly the ordination service itself, where we recognized our brother as qualified gifted and called by God to the office of elder. And in that service, not only did we install Dave as an elder, but we gave special recognition to the diaconate, um, giving them plaques as an emblem of our gratitude for all they do for this congregation. And while nobody has come forth and told me this directly, I suspect that maybe, there just maybe, some among us who do not consider themselves to be of any value to the life of the church. Some of you may think to yourselves, if only I could perform the functions of an elder or a deacon, I'd be of good use to the kingdom. If only I could lead a Bible study, if only I could sing or play an instrument, if only I had the mind of a philosopher, but I'm just a simple man or woman from southern Ohio. If only I had more money to give to the church, then maybe I'd be of good use. Maybe if you're a recent convert, you may consider yourself as being too inexperienced and too young in the faith. The list could go on and on for all the reasons that we may not think that we have placed in the body of Christ. We might say, well, if I were married, then I could serve in a specific way, the way that married people serve. If I were single, hopefully that's not your, 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 your hope, but if I were single, if I didn't have as many responsibilities, then I could do these things. I'd love to serve the church in certain ways, but I have so many children or if I had some children, maybe I could serve in other ways. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that that is not so. Every believer has been given a gift, a spiritual gift, that can be used to edify the church. The temptation may be to think that if you cannot do some of those things, there is no place for you 
in the body of Christ. You may consider yourself an outsider or a loner. And in thinking, thinking if you could do any of these things, then maybe you think then if you had those, then you could be a benefit to the people of God. And so my hope and prayer is uh, that in this sermon, you would be encouraged, learning that you do, in fact, have a gift. Being inspired to do the work that God has called you to with the mind God has given you and the circumstances that God has placed you within the context of the church that God has brought you to. So this morning we'll be reading through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27. Verses 12 through 27. the sound of pages turning. It's a good sound. All right. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, should say because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less the body, a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. We come here remembering the sermon last week that we ought not to be only hearers but doers and ask that that would be true of us this morning, that we would hear the word and also do what it requires. For we know that we are not fit for these things, that we cannot do what is required apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would enable us now to rightly hear, to rightly receive, 
If there is sin, convict us of our sin and cause us to repent. And Lord, if we need encouragement, grant encouragement to those who need it. We ask these things of your heavenly Father, in the name of the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, the purpose of Paul writing this letter was to exhort the Corinthian church to holy living and to holy living in unity. Uh, the church in Corinth had a host of issues. It was riddled with grievous sin. Uh, there was rampant sexual immorality, and there were divisions within the church. One of the points of the divisions in the church was found in their use of spiritual gifts, and in particular, the gifts of tongues. There was an overemphasis on public gifts being more vital to the church and an underappreciation of the lesser known or less visible gifts. And so Paul's remedy for this division was to remind them that they are united together in Christ as one body. And so you may be asking yourselves, uh, why do we need to hear this? There's no division in our church, right? Why would we need to hear this remedy for division if there is, in fact, no division? I think that we are a pretty healthy church body for the most part. But what I want to say is if we have the same mind among ourselves as the Corinthians, if we are sinners as the Corinthians are sinners, then why couldn't we ever experience division in the church? And what I mean by this is if there is any part of us who thinks that we may have nothing to offer the church and come merely to receive rather than to serve, or someone who has a public gift becomes prideful and arrogant, thinking they're more vital to the body, not standing in need of their brothers and sisters, then why wouldn't there be divisions? While I recognize this does not appear to be an immediate issue in our local church body, if that is a thought in your mind, or if there is a seed of selfishness or arrogance, and if it does not go unchecked, it will grow, flourish, and Satan will use it to divide congregations. So in reality, the thrust of this sermon is really twofold. First, it is to exhort the church to utilize the gifts that God has given to each of us. And second, the sermon is preemptive, to disable the weapons of Satan and keep any possible church division at bay. Uh, we are not so reformed that we cannot experience division. We are not so confessional that we cannot experience division. We may not divide on doctrine, right? We have our confession of faith that we hold to. We are united on those truths. But there can be division if there's quarreling, bitterness, anger, an underappreciation of some and an overappreciation of others. We need to be reminded that we are sinners the same way that the Corinthian church is made up of sinners. And it's possible for us, if we are not careful, to be guilty of the very same sins. So this sermon is to be a bit preemptive, right? Like, I believe that we are pretty healthy. There is no visible quarreling. But I want this to be at the forefront of our minds, to be conscious of who we are in Christ and what our purpose is. So I'm not going to be walking through this text verse by verse. This is a very long portion of Scripture. But I want to look at four main principles or truths, four headings as we consider this text as a whole. And the first truth that we see is that we are united in Christ. That we are united in Christ. There are many different word pictures given in the Old and New Testaments with regard to God's relationship to his people. We are called the temple of God. We are called God's field. 
We are called the bride of Christ. 1 Peter 2.5 reads, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And so Paul uses many of these word pictures as he reaches back in the Old Testament and applies them to the New Testament church. But here in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul gives a new word picture that, to my knowledge, is not only unique to the New Testament, but unique to Paul himself. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So it is with Christ. Paul uses this corporal imagery uniting the body, which is the church, to its head, who is Christ. Now, why is this language unique to Paul? I think Paul is pulling from the words of Christ himself in Acts 2.44, uh, when he was approaching Damascus prior to his conversion. At this time, Paul, who was called Saul, was overseeing the persecution and murder of Christ's people, And as he approached Damascus to continue on that grievous, evil work, a light from heaven shone around him, blinded him, and Saul fell to the ground, and Christ spoke to him. And Christ said, or asked him rather, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Now, had Paul personally and physically abused the physical body of Christ? No. He may have seen him or been aware of who he was, but to my knowledge, he never laid a hand on Christ. But who was Saul persecuting at the time? It was Christ's people. So while this bodily language of the church being the body of Christ seems unique to Paul, likely due to his own experience, it does not originate with him. It seems to originate from Christ himself, who verbally takes ownership of and declares his union to his bride. From Christ's own mouth, he makes this profound statement as being so united to his church that when his church is persecuted, it's as if he himself is being persecuted. And so how is that so? If we are on earth and Christ is in heaven, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, Jesus Christ came in the flesh, purchased this church, and sent the gospel message into the world And he commissioned apostles to go throughout the world making disciples. Now that Christ is in heaven, those who belong to his spiritual body continue that great work which he started on earth. The church is Christ's means means of accomplishing his will on earth. Christ's church is the physical representation of Christ on earth as we are by the power of the Holy Spirit as we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaim the gospel throughout the world with goodwill towards our neighbors, just as Christ had done these things in his earthly ministry. As one commentator wrote, this is very clear, I appreciate this, in order to accomplish his works on earth, Jesus had a body made of flesh and blood. In order to accomplish his work today, Jesus has a body that consists of living human beings. We're united to Christ. We are the body of Christ. 
And so how? How are we united to Christ? Well, Paul tells us in verse 13, the next verse. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So how are we united to Christ? We are united to Christ in the one spirit, being baptized with that one spirit into the body. And the baptism that Paul is speaking of is not the sacrament of baptism by water. Rather, this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is administered to us by Christ, whereby we are convinced of our sinfulness to agree with God that we need a Savior and lay hold of Christ, the only Savior, by faith. The baptism of the Holy Spirit refers to our conversion, our new birth, being brought out of the darkness and into light. And this is true of every sincere believer. Every one of you who have looked to Christ with the eye of faith have received this baptism. If you hadn't, you wouldn't believe savingly. You wouldn't trust in Christ. This is true of every believer. Now, I recognize that this term or phrase has been severely abused, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, particularly within the Pentecostal denominations. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this concept. After all, it is very very common in this region where you hear someone say, oh, you're a Christian. That's great. But have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? This is the second baptism of the Holy Spirit that they are referring to. What they are referring to is generally that it can be an emotional experience or it can be a Christian who was in time of backsliding and they were convicted of their sin and Christ pulled them out of it and they have a new zeal for God. Or they will say it's a greater presence of the Holy Spirit to, to dwell in you. Right, The baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, gives you greater power in your life to do or accomplish the will of God. Uh, they would say upon your conversion you received a portion of the Holy Spirit. But to receive the full portion of the Holy Spirit you must ask God. And then by faith you will be baptized again. And typically what they teach is that this second baptism results in speaking in tongues. Now, I'm not going to be speaking on the topic of tongues today. That is not the purpose of this sermon. But what I do want you to know is that this teaching is false doctrine. It's not found in the scriptures. And it is a doctrine that whether they recognize it or not creates a sort of division in the church. Whether they intend to or not, it certainly fosters this type of next-level Christianity within the church. You have the super-Christians or the more faithful, more spiritual Christians who have this amazing gift being baptized a second time by the Holy Spirit. And then you have lower class Christians who merely, merely receive salvation. It's ironic that this teaching in Pentecostal denominations is largely a basis for discrimination within the church, while Paul intends to unite the church with this fundamental truth. He says, we all were baptized into one body and by one spirit. We all have received that. What a comfort it is. Consider the sinfulness of the Corinthian church. We've all been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so what I want you to know is that there is no next level Christianity. God has not gifted some of us with a greater portion of his spirit than others. As great of a preacher as Pastor Dave is, I appreciate him with all of his knowledge. He does not have a greater portion of the Holy Spirit 
than even the recent convert. The seasoned believer who has walked with Christ does not have a more secure salvation than the one who is an infant in Christ. It may be more mature, and it may be more proven through trials, but those who Christ has called belong to Christ. And the gospel promises belong immutably so to each of the elect of God. I heard one minister put it this way, which I think is helpful for those who question the work of the Spirit in their lives due to their sinfulness or things they're wrestling with. He says, if there is any deficiency in us, it is not because we only have a certain amount of the Spirit living within us. Rather, if there is any deficiency in us, it is in ourselves, in our disobedience, and our rebellion. Any deficiency in us is not due to us only having a partial baptism in the Holy, with the Holy Spirit. For we have all been made to drink, being immersed in that one's baptism with the Holy Spirit. Again, comforting thought that is. So we've established that we were brought into union with Christ by our spiritual baptism. We are called the body of Christ. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean that we have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that we have union with Christ? Well, prior to our conversion, we were in Adam. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. And due to our sins, we stood under the judgment of God. And we deserve the wrath of God. That is who we were in Adam. And now that we have been baptized in Christ, the work of Christ has been applied to us. Christ went to the cross to die in our place. He took the sins that belonged to his church on his shoulders and was crucified for them. He was buried for them. He was raised for them. Which means that really, being united to Christ means that all that is true of Christ's human nature is now true of his church. Romans 6, I'm going to read 3 through 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Brothers and sisters, just as Jesus Christ, our federal head, was nailed to that cross, so it is that his spiritual body, the sins of his spiritual body, have been nailed to that cross. Just as our federal head was buried in death, so it is that we are united in his burial, and his spiritual body has likewise been buried in death. Just as our federal head was resurrected from the grave, being given a glorified body, so it is that his spiritual body, the church will be resurrected from the dead to receive glorified bodies. So united is the body and our spiritual baptism that where our head goes, the body follows. We have been united in Christ. Second point, we have been put together by Christ. We have been put together by Christ. Christ is building his church, amen? We see this truth expressly stated three times in the small portion of Scripture, which we have read this morning. It's found in verses 13, 18, and 24. Verse 13, And all were made to drink of one 
spirit. Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. Verse 24, God has so composed the body. Verse 13, which states that all were made to drink of the one spirit, um, that all being all who have been brought into union with Christ, is really a parallel clause to the preceding statement in that same verse where we are told we've been baptized or immersed with the one spirit into the one body. And these parallel clauses speak, again, of our common Christian experience of conversion. Those who have been baptized with the spirit, likewise, have been made to drink of the same spirit. And this is no work of our own. God has made us to drink of the one spirit. Ephesians 1, 4. He, God the Father, chose us in him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Brothers and sisters, God the Father has sovereignly chosen each and every one of us. God the Son has purchased us and God the Spirit has applied Christ's redemptive work to us sealing us for the day of redemption. And God has done this, or God has done so, in order to accomplish his holy will for his glory. Christian, hear me. God has chosen you. While the body of Christ is much larger than this congregation, surely it is. And God has, uh, while it is larger than this congregation, this congregation is a local expression of the universal church. And God has sovereignly called each and every person who makes up this assembly to function in whatever capacity you have been given as a part of the whole. Again, 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. There is not a single rogue living stone that has been brought into the spiritual house of God. No one has snuck into it. If you are a living stone... God has made you that living stone, and he has placed you in that spiritual building. And God, uh, each stone serves a purpose in the spiritual building that God has composed. God is gathering stones from across various regions, from people with various backgrounds. He is arranging, composing, and joining them together to serve a common purpose, and it does not matter what your upbringing may have been. Paul says, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of the one spirit. God brings people together from various religious upbringings and different socioeconomic circumstances to participate in Christ. To put this in modern terms, whether you grew up in a religious household being handed all the treasures of the apostolic faith or an atheistic one. Whether you were merely outwardly religious or a stubborn pagan, whether you are rich or poor, whether you grew up with committed and faithful parents or a broken home, whether you are knowledgeable of many things, having a very high education, or whether you're ignorant of many things, maybe you didn't even make it through high school. God brings people from all different backgrounds, and he He brings them to himself, uniting them to the body of Christ, making them to drink of the one spirit. Now, God does save us individually. 
as we are in the places we are. But make no mistake, while we are saved as individuals, we are then brought into a single body and we are therefore to live a life of interdependence to one another. Individualism, every man for himself, is a foreign concept to the scriptures and is not the perspective we ought to have considering that we each share in the body of Christ. Each and every believer has been sovereignly chosen and brought into the body of Christ, and he's done so for a purpose. We have to recognize that. Third heading, we have been gifted by Christ. To be clear, this is not true of every person who has ever existed. This is not true of those who merely belong to the visible church without sincere faith in what Christ has done. But this is true of every person who belongs to the invisible church, that is, those who have believed into Christ and been given saving faith. At the moment of your conversion, when Christ baptized you with the Holy Spirit, when you were made to drink of that one spirit, when you were united to Christ, put together in the body of Christ, you were given a spiritual gift. That is true of each and every believer here. 1 Corinthians 12, these are verses 4 through 7, before the text we read this morning. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of service. Start again. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What is the manifestation of the Spirit? What's the things that precede it? It is the various gifts by which we serve and the activities we participate in to the glory of our Lord. And these gifts are the visible manifestations or evidences of God's work accomplished in our hearts. It is not by your own strivings that you have attained your gifts. We did not twist God's arm to give them to us. We did not persuade God to give them to us. Rather, he is freely and graciously, according to his good pleasure and the needs of the people he's placed you around, given them to us according to his will. Put this into perspective, when Pastor Dave Allison was ordained, while he did aspire the office, which is a good thing, he did not force God's hand to place him in that office or do anything to merit the gifts that make him fit for that office. Rather, under the ordinary means of grace, God equipped him with the things necessary to fulfill that role, to grow in the gifts that God has given him, making him fit for that office. And all we did as the church was recognize that God had gifted him in that way, in that particular way, and so the church agreed with God and visibly confirmed his calling. That's what we did. We agreed that he had those gifts, that he met those qualifications. And so it is with each of us. God gives us our gifts. Some of these gifts may seem extraordinary or ordinary. Some of these gifts are going to be recognized publicly. Some will be more private. And I'll say, that's fine. Private gifts, not everything needs to be public. There is a place for people to practice or exercise their gifts in private. Not every gift is going to be as public 
celebrated, or developed. But all of them are of vital importance for the life and body of the church. As verse 7 tells us, they are given for the common good, for the common good of the believers. Now, there's not a conclusive list of the gifts of God, of the gifts that God gives. I'm sure some of you are wanting, like, give us a list of things that we can look to. Like, what is my gift? That doesn't, I don't think, exist in the scriptures. Uh, it takes many shapes and forms. Uh, but I have a list of nine. I think these are things that while we should all strive for them and seek to increase in, that some people will just naturally have a greater measure of than others because you've been gifted in them by the Holy Spirit. And these things are knowledge, discernment, wisdom, mercy, faith, teaching, exhortation, generosity, and service. Again, this is not an inclu- a conclusive list. And all of these things really do kind of like intermingle with one another, right? Service. Well, you can serve in many ways. You can serve with the knowledge you have or with the discernment or with teaching, exhortation. These things all kind of tie together. But what I want us to see with just these this small lists that I have uh, made is how these things can be used for the building up of Christ's church and for the edification of one another. And each gift that we have been given uh, is given to us as we are. Whatever gift we've been given is given to us as we are. What I mean is that uh, we retain our peculiar properties even as we make use of our gifts. Um, To be clear, our unity in Christ does not equate to uniformity. Right? Our unity in Christ does not equate to uniformity. Uh, while some of us may have the same gifts, we don't exercise them in the exact same way. Um, Pastor Dave's, there's two of them, Pastor Dave's, Dave and Dave Allison, and myself, we do not preach the same way, but we do preach the same Christ. Uh, while while uh, Janet, Bob, and Crystal, while, while they do, um, while they do not encourage in the exact same way, they do encourage in the same Christ. OJ and Randy, uh, one way they serve the church is by cleaning and ensuring that everything is in order for this Lord's Day. They do not clean the same way, I'm sure. They likely have different methods and routines. While their methods may differ, they do so in service to the same Christ. Now, all of us pray the same way, but we all pray to the Father and the Son by the, Holy, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We retain our individuality as God uses us as we are. I think we see this again in uh, Jews or Greeks, slaves, free, all were made to drink of the one spirit. Let me ask you this. Does a Jew lose his Jewishness when he's made a drink of the one spirit? And I'm speaking ethnically here. He lays down his religion and comes to Christ, but he's still Jewish. Does a Greek lose his Greekness whenever he's made to drink of the one spirit? No, he's still Greek. Are slaves, those workers who work under bond servants, are they made free men when they're made to drink of the one spirit? No, they still serve as slaves. Those who are free, do they lose their freedom? No. They retain their freedom. God uses us as we are where we retain our peculiar properties. 
the three points that we've gone through so far is that you've been united to Christ, we've been placed by Christ, we've been gifted by Christ. I want you to know this, Christian, if you are a believer, these are objectively true of you, whether you fully believe them, whether you fully comprehend them, they are true of you. If there are things that you've heard this morning that you were not aware of, they were true of you before you heard the sermon. They were true of you the moment that you had converted. These are objectively true of you. <clears throat> they are as true they are as true as the pew that you are sitting on right now. They are as true as the pulpit that I'm standing behind right now. So we use these gifts to ret while retaining our peculiar properties. And we ought to do these things to use these gifts. And this is the fourth heading. And in doing so, we ought to operate with the mind of Christ. As we use these gifts, we ought to operate with the mind of Christ. So what does it mean to operate with the mind of Christ? This is very broad. It's very broad. Uh, it is to share in his plans and his purposes for his church and to aim to do so with this perspective that Christ will be glorified among this congregation, that we would share in his humility and compassion as we lay down our own rights and serve one another, that we would be forgiving, that we would be long-suffering with one another, to bear with one another in our weaknesses. Really, I think you can say that we would love God, love our neighbor, right? That's what Christ did. That's what we ought to do. What is God's revealed will for his bride? The, the will of God for his bride is that we would be sanctified, that we be sprinkled with the word of God, and so we ought to do all things that would tend to that end, that we would that we'd be sanctified and that we become knowledgeable of the word of God. So in what ways, knowing that we are to operate with the mind of Christ, what ways are we prone to neglect this duty to operate with the mind of Christ? Well, the same way the Corinthian church was neglecting this duty, I think. Um, this duty was largely neglected when, is largely neglected when we become haters of self or lovers of self. Haters of self, we see this in verse 15. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less of the part of the body. We see that they despise themselves. There's no place for me in the church. I don't have this gift. There's no point of me being here. When we are haters of self, diminishing what God has done in us, wrongly believing that there is no place for us in the church, we bear false witness against God. God has decreed that it is right and good to bring all the believing into the church, to place them where they are with whatever gifts he has given to them. And the temptation for those who do not recognize their gift or do not appreciate their gift will be to neglect it. You will not make use of it. And when they assemble with the people of God, they will not give, but only receive. They will not look to see how they can serve, but they will look only to be served. I'm not saying there is anyone here who does not contribute, but I am saying the one who thinks he or she has not been given a spiritual gift will be guilty of coming to the body only to receive what others offer and not actively participating with 
were serving the church, offering themselves to her in Christ. Not only do these types of individuals bear false witness about God saying, there is no purpose for me in the church. We've already established that he sovereignly placed you here. But they may even accuse God of wrongdoing as they covet the gifts of others. Saying the gifts others have ought to belong to me instead. I'd make better use of them. They would say, I wish I had not this gift. Or I wish that I was not given this place in life or this station. But they, would think it'd be be- that, but they would think it better to have something other than what God has given them. And to that I say, God knows you better than you do. And God is building his church. And he has given to you exactly what is appropriate for you and what those around you need. The other inclination of the Corinthians, which is contrary to the mind of Christ, is having a mind of pride and arrogance being puffed up over the gifts you have been given and looking down on those around you if they cannot as if they cannot be a benefit to you and that they may that they are they are so fortunate to have you in their lives see this in verse 21 the eye cannot say to the hand i have no need of you nor again the head of the feet i have no need of you what paul is saying is what good are the eyes if there are no hands to work with Imagine going to work, right, and having only eyes and no hands. Nurses, you could see the patient that needs care, but you could not tend to them as needed. Teachers could see the student that needs instructed, and they could see the board and the markers needed to write on the board so the student can understand a math equation more properly, but they have no hand to write with. So what good are the eyes if you have no hands? And Paul says, what good is a head without feet? I think the picture Paul is painting with this illustration and wants us to see is that there is a great distance between the head and the feet. There's a great distance between the head and the feet. There may be a great distance between the highest part of the body, which is where the senses are, and the feet, which stand at the lowest point of the body, but it is by the feet that the head can get to where it needs to go. If the head knows that there is danger coming, they can see it, they can sense it, but has no feet, then the whole body has been rendered useless and can no longer function properly. The head cannot say to the feet, I have no need of you. Likewise, the feet cannot say to the head, I have no need of you. The head is needed to see the danger, to see where safety is, and the feet is needed to move to safety. Each member has need of one another. Pride, arrogance, and a sense of superiority with the gifts that God has given is commonly is most commonly seen among those whose gifts are most public, most celebrated, and developed. This is obviously pastors puffed up with pride, and in today's American churches, worship leaders who are like modern-day rock stars. I think it's Foster. There's a reason why we got rid of the spotlights on the person singing the music that communicates something to the congregation and to the person singing. I know it because I did that for a long time. Sense of superiority. I'm important. They need me. They rely on me. While thinking, I don't need them. If pastors are not careful, likewise, if any of us are not careful, 
we may fall into this snare. After all, while they are not the ultimate authority in the church, pastors, they are a true authority in the church, and they may view their congregants who are to submit to them in all things lawful as people to be lorded over and of being no benefit to them. Paul says that is not so. Pastors need even the lowest of the flock, and the lowest of the flock need pastors. As John Gill says, there can be no more, there can no more be without them than the head can be without the feet. And if this uh, symbiotic relationship is true between gospel ministers who have authority in the church and those members of the church with the lowest authority, then it also rings true for everyone in between. The head, the feet, and everything in between, it rings true. How do we know if you are using your gift for pride? There's arrogance. Well, one thing we can consider is that prideful men often do their work in order to find fulfillment in it. Now, the work that is done for Christ is often fulfilling. I grant you that. Some occasions bring more fulfillment initially than others. But if the thing that drives you to use your gift is merely to find your own personal fulfillment and sense of well-being, that is not the proper perspective to have. We find our fulfillment in Christ, and in him we selflessly serve one another. Sometimes men seek vain fulfillment to hear the applause of men, to receive compliments, to be men of great reputation and esteemed highly. And if that is you today, I say to you, you have your reward. Have the praises of men. But hear me, it is not pleasing to the Lord. We must not go about our gifts with a sense of pride, as if we do not stand in need of the one who gave them to us or those who are gifted differently whom God has placed around us. What I want us to see is that while there are various gifts, while there are unique gifts, there is not a tier system in the church. There's not a class system in the church. Our nation loves class systems right now, right? Class struggle. You have the wealthy, you have the poor. We have those who hate the rich, love the poor. You have those who love the poor and despise the rich. That does not exist in the church of God. That does not belong. There is not a class here. We are all united in Christ. We are one body and we stand in need. While there is an authority structure ordained by God in his church, we are all equally needy and dependent people. Put it simply, we are all members of the same church. All of us, myself included, we just have different gifts. That's all it is. Different gifts. All same mem- members of the same church. And we need one another. I need my wife. Often at times, she is far more compassionate than I am. And uh, she reminds me of that often. There are people who are too soft that need the stern so they can toughen up a bit. There are those who are too stern that need to be softened up a little bit. We can grow from each other and learn from each other. We need each other. We need those who can encourage. We need those who can offer counsel we're all counselors if we're christians by the way if you have close uh, fellowship with your fellow believers you're giving them counsel we all give counsel we need good counsel we need those who can offer wisdom 
We need those who have a greater measure of faith. We need those who are willing to pray for us. Some people uh, may have more time on their hands. We see this often with single individuals. While they can be busy, they may not be as busy as a family. People who have four, five, six children. And so we need people who are willing to pray. And again, this is a private thing. Prayer is sometimes public, but it's good to pray in private for the parts of the body. We need people who are willing to serve the church by cleaning. We need those who are skilled in organizing events. We need people who can use their talents to keep this building functioning, not falling apart or burning down to the ground. And there are people in this church who have been given that gift and use it for the good of the body. We need each other. We depend upon one another. I was talking with Dave Allison this morning. Gave an illustration of sports. I'm a massive hockey fan. Um, it's a team sport. Everyone needs each other. There are some people who do not receive as much glory. I like to watch the recaps. Everyone looks at the goals. Like, that was an awesome goal. I'm like, yeah, but did you see what that defender did or the offensive guy did to, to give the assist? Like, that was a crazy move. And no one gave him any glory for it. It was just, that was good. And that was necessary. If he hadn't done that, you wouldn't have the goal. We need people. We are dependent on people to utilize their gifts for the fullness or for the good of the body to the glory of Christ. Those are some of the ways that we fail to operate with the mind of Christ, right? Self-hating and arrogance and pride. Uh, What ways can we positively operate with the mind of Christ? One way is to suffer with those who suffer. Verse 26, if one member suffers, we all suffer together. I'm not so sure this statement is given as a command as much as it is assumed. After all, that's how our physical bodies react, is it not? Uh, Lindsay, hope you don't mind me as using an example this morning. Uh, suffering from a shattered elbow. What does her body naturally do in light of her injury? It compensates. The arm does not function as it's supposed to, and so naturally the rest of the body will compensate and pick up where that member is lacking. If your back is out, I know many of us have had our backs thrown out, uh, your arms and your legs will inconvenience themselves to keep you in a right position to prevent further injury. Right? You will get into your legs, will do some weird stuff if you're trying to keep your back up straight while you're trying to move around the house. While it is inconvenient for your legs, they don't accuse your back of wrongdoing. Legs don't talk, but if they could, they wouldn't say, I'm not going to help you if you wouldn't have been so ignorant and try to pick up that ladder or that heavy object all by yourself. You wouldn't even be in this position. I'm not saying that if someone has developed a sinful pattern of behavior that causes harm, we don't address it, right? We love brothers and sisters in Christ. We seek to help them grow in spiritual maturity, but we do, while we do aim to see them walk in obedience to the Lord, our knee-jerk reaction when we see someone suffering ought not to be one of vindictiveness or accusatory or a lack of care for that member in the body. We should not say, that's their problem. They should have known better. If they'd have only taken better care of themselves, they wouldn't be in this position. No, the body 
naturally compensates and comes to the aid of the injured member. And we as Christ's body must come to the aid, especially of the particularly wounded sheep. Continuing on in verse 26, not only do we suffer with those who suffer, but we are to rejoice when one member is honored. We are to rejoice for one another when one of us is in a season of intense joy. Now, I know that this can be very difficult, especially if there is someone who is in a season of intense, of intense difficulty. It can be very difficult when you're suffering to see those around you doing well, isn't it? And so those who are rejoicing in the good things, be mindful of those who are hurting among you. Be mindful of them and suffer with them. And, and those who are hurting, be mindful of those who are doing well, who have been blessed. Rejoice with them as they're honored. Rejoice with them. We ought to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And we ought to be able to do so simultaneously. We are to have the mind of Christ, to operate with the mind of Christ as we live in unity with one another. Not diminishing our gifts or being envious of one another. Not overemphasizing our gifts with pride and looking down on one another. We are to rejoice with those who are honored and weep with those who mourn. The gifts of the Spirit practiced within the context of the church. This is important. The gifts of the Spirit, while, uh, while the gifts of the Spirit practiced in the context of the church, while important, are not more important than the fruit of the Spirit. If we make use of our gifts detached from a constant, conscious exercise of the fruit of the Spirit, then we are no benefit to anybody. We need the fruit of the Spirit to work as we practice the gifts that God has given to us. The fruits of the Spirit... In light of that, we are to use our gifts with love, with joy, with peace, with patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I was uh, reading, I'm almost finished up here, as they would say, you've seen Braveheart. Um, my wife says, no, I haven't, every time. I was reading through Romans 16, and uh, this is where Paul sent his greetings, and I began to think. Uh, a lot of people don't know who those people are. I forget how many people are listed. It's like 25 or 29, something like that. It's a lot of people, and most people don't know who they are, and we wouldn't know who they are if they wouldn't have been recorded in Scripture for us to know today. Um, they were very important to Paul. Uh, we look at Paul as, oh, he's apostle. He was gifted by God, and that is true, but we look at him as if he's not a man. He's a man, and he's in need, and he needs encouragement, and he shows that as he sends his letter out to the Roman church saying, hey, send my greetings to these people who were imprisoned with me. Send these greetings to these people who no one knows who they are, but they fed me and took care of me when I was in chains. These are my friends who I've spent good time with. Tell them I love them. Send my greeting to them. What we see is that Paul needed these people who no one knows seemingly no names Paul needed them and they needed Paul to teach and instruct them 
We need one another. So application. I have three points of application this morning. Whether you've noticed it or not, I have laid before you a lot of law. A lot. There are many oughts, many we shalls and shall nots. So I just want to remind you, first off, that as you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Our obedience to this does not grant or merit our salvation. It's found in Christ alone. And in light of that, we then strive to serve one another in the body of Christ. I want to remind you that all that we are required to do cannot be accomplished merely by our own strivings or human hands. Loving one another the way that God commands is no easy feat. Some may be easier than others, but we often don't love one another as we ought to. Apart from the divine assistance of God and his Holy Spirit working in us, we cannot do these things. But again, I want you to remember that you have been united with Christ. The Holy Spirit does live within us. If you believe and by his grace, because we are his people, we can strive and work towards these things and do so in a way that's pleasing to him. Second, pray. More law. <laughs> pray. Ask God, in dependence of him, to help you to use your gifts and the capacities you are able for his glory and for the good of the church. Not only pray for yourself, but pray for the other members of this body that God would do for them as you ask for yourself, that he would help them to grow in their spiritual gifts and that they would glorify God with them and be of good use to the body. And third, see each other in light of these truths we've heard this morning. Even if there are people within this church that you don't get along with as well as you'd like, or there are people that you might, might find mildly annoying, remind, remind, remember that they too are united to Christ. They have been placed within a church with you and you with them. They have gifts and Christ has died for them. Christ has died for them. We should not look with contempt on the very ones whom Christ has died and purchased with his blood. Those are my three points of application. May the Lord work in each of our hearts to live together in unity for the glory of God and for the common good of one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And we ask that you would enable us by the power of your Holy Spirit to help us to live in union with one another. Lord, again, we cannot do this by ourselves. We need you and we need the Holy Spirit to work in us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bring these truths to bear on us. Convict us if we've been prideful. Convict us if we've been given a gift and not been using it to your glory. And Lord, may we find assurance knowing that even if we have failed in these ways, Christ has surely paid for them on the cross. Lord, we ask that you would help us in these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.